0: Another, day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler.
1: And really don't Hi, folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival this Podcast. Pain. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times. The things that we can all do to live a better life. If time tough. tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 418 of the Survival Podcast. It is April 16th, 2010. It is a Friday. I hope you filed your taxes before yesterday ended, or at least filed an extension if you didn't do that. And if you can uh, keep from paying a little bit longer, that's fine. But remember, when you file an extension, you're supposed to pay what you think you owe anyway, or face fines and penalties and misery. From our overlords. Anyway, off the tax subject, except we will talk about it a little bit today, I'm going to kind of do a different show than I've ever done today. I'm going to do like a montage, pause. some things that have come in this week in response to my show. Uh, I'm going to do some questions that are still in the backlog from being away for a week. And I'm going to talk about a couple things that are conspiracy theories uh, from a thread in the forum. There's a forum thread called... Uh, basically asking me to do a show on the best of the Tinfoil Hat Brigade, and I, I thought about it, and I decided that doing a whole show on just the Tinfoil Hat Brigade stuff uh, might be to be a little bit much. So I'm going to talk about two of the big conspiracy theories today and tell you my thoughts on them, and you might be surprised. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Uh, housekeeping item one, as always, is taking care of our sponsors. Remember, they do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here every day. Sponsor of the day number one is Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep is exactly what it says. It delivers exactly what it promises. Common Sense items for your preparatory needs to make sure that you're ready to deal with any type of situation, from the tactical to the practical and back again. Check out Common Sense Prep. And remember... You can always find the banners for all of our sponsors at thesurvivalpodcast.com and know that you're dealing with the right company, the actual sponsor of the show. And also remember about Common Sense Prep. They provide a discount of 15% off of all the Paladin Press books available on their site. A link to a special page to buy them at the discounted rate is available for you in the MSB uh, members area, the uh, benefits area the MSB, if you're an MSB member. If you're not, a little more on that in just a second. Uh, next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is an amazing company with a huge assortment of herbs and supplements and uh, other things like that, all of which are either organically grown or wild crafted. Great source of information as well. And remember, they also have a great program called a uh, Preferred Members Program. It costs $50 a year, and you get 25% off every single purchase you ever make from them. So obviously that can pay itself back quickly. But if you're an MSB member, guess what? You get that membership for free. Uh, we'll go on a little bit more about again MSB in just a second. Before that, I want to remind you to join our forum, get involved with our forum, be part of our forum. I want to give you a little interesting statistic about our forum. It's about a year and a half old, I guess, now. So been around about 18 months. Our moderators are ruthless in getting rid of spammers. So when you look at our member account, those are real members. When somebody signs up with a fake account or uh, doesn't post ever or doesn't activate or what have you, we delete them and we go through and we clean them out every week. So we have a very pure member number. Our member number on the forum as of this morning was over 5,500 members. Over 5,000 of you guys are members of the forum and helping each other figure out how to live that better life. So far on the forum, we've had 178,000 posts. When I say there is a tremendous resource available to you if you'll only avail yourself of it at the forum, I'm not kidding, folks. That's uh, that's a lot of information, and that's a lot of helpful information that's out there. Last but not least, I want you to consider joining the Member Support Brigade today. If you have not already done so, do that. You'll support the show at 20 cents an episode. That breaks down to $5 a month or $50 a year, which gives you a discount off the $5 a month of about $10 a year. So you decide how you want to pay. If you do that, not only will you help support the show, you will get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get a lot of discounts, like the two I already told you about today. You'll get a tremendous amount of ebooks, over $100 worth of value in free ebooks. Uh, You'll get 20 members-only videos, and again, you'll know your help supporting the show. With that, we've got the housekeeping wrapped up, except I want to remind you one more time. The Berkey guy is running a contest this month. You have to enter this month. You only got about half the month left to go. There's a forum thread about it. I'll put a link in today's show notes, but if you want to win free Berkey stuff, check it out. And with that, we'll go ahead and get into the main topics of today's show, which, of course, are going to be varied and unusual because they come from your feedback, the forum. And uh, just some things that have popped over the last week. All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about today is a follow-up from my show on the tax stuff yesterday. One of the ways I talked about to reduce or eliminate your tax footprint yesterday was barter instead of purchase. Now, what I found is that some people have a need to point things out that don't necessarily need to be pointed out. A couple in comments on the blog and a bunch of you by email citing IRS tax code to me that says, hey, look, the IRS says that if you do barter, you have to report it as gained income. I know this. I think anybody out there that really looks at taxes at any length of time knows this, but I want you to think beyond the fact that there's not a paper trail because I can't endorse you bartering and not reporting it, right? Right not saying you might not do it. I'm saying I can't endorse it. I can't go out and endorse any activity that would even be construed as possibly illegal. But I do want you to think about what barter is. Barter is an exchange of equal value. Okay? I want you to think about that one more time. Barter is an exchange of equal value. So, if we're bartering, and I give you some... Uh, old car parts for your car you're trying to restore, and you give me some tomatoes from your yard, not only would I report the fact that I received the tomatoes if I'm going to report that, but I would report the value of the item that I offered in exchange for the tomatoes, and guess what I would do? I would report them as equal value. Then there's no net gain and there's no income. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have to think for some of you guys out there and help you put those dots together. But that's that's how you do that, okay? I mean, if you're bartering for silver, that's a different story, because you're using money. See, silver's money. Gold is money, right? Um, But if you sell something, right, the seller, right, and in a barter situation, both people are the sellers, as long as we're not, again, gold and silver going to a different kind of weird world. But if I'm giving you an old gunsmithing kit, I'm selling it to you. You're purchasing it with something. But as far as the transactions concerned, I'm purchasing from you. So let's look at this another way. If, if I go into a store and they have an old gun on the shelf, a Lever Action Marlin 44 Magnum, and they, they've been trying to get rid of that gun because it's rusted and it's got a few dinks on it or whatever for a long time, and I don't care. I'm willing to buy it. But what they've done is they've cut it down to their cost. So let's say they took it in a, it's like a pawn shop, and they took it in at $200, right? And I pay them $200 for it. Do they have to report the transaction as a sale? Of course. But what do they report as profit on the transaction? Zero dollars. So what do they pay in taxes on it? Zero dollars. Understand that, and if you have this compulsion to report the fact that you and your neighbors bartered tomatoes for peppers, if you think you need to do that, just... Put them at equivalent value, and then there's no profit, and therefore there's no tax consequences. I don't know why some of you are so nitpicky about this. As you can tell, I'm a little bit irritated that somebody would even bring this up. And I think it's, you guys are well-meaning. I'm sorry. I really am to be a jerk like this. You're well-meaning. And what you're saying is, look, don't think you can just do this in large scale and, and use it as a tax shelter because you can't. When I was talking about barter yesterday, again, that's what I was talking about you and your neighbor trading a couple things out of your garage because one doesn't use his anymore and the other does, or trading time for something. And again, as long as both are seen as equivalent value, both sides in a barter transaction are actually selling, and then there is no net gain on either side. And why would you barter when that isn't the case? And this is why the IRS just has to throw these little things out there out of greed without really thinking See, the beauty of barter is there's never a profit. That's why the IRS doesn't like it. That's why they have to put these little things out there to try to come down on it. And the main thing they're after is trying to prevent people from creating an economic system that circumvents them that's based mostly on silver and or gold. Okay, that's that's their real concern as far as I can tell from everything that I've read. Because when you and I barter with items, we both feel good about the exchange. But neither of us has profited. Now, let's take it to the next level where we might have to report everything because there's a profit. I go to you, and you have an old boat motor that's kind of beat up. I have a bunch of old fishing gear that I just don't use anymore because I used to fish, but I want the motor for a different reason. You still fish. You got a new boat. I give you all my old fishing gear. You give me your boat motor. We both declare a value on the stuff of 150 bucks and we swap that. Okay, there's no net gain. I take your old motor and I go out and buy hundred dollars worth of parts and I rebuild that motor. Now I have two hundred fifty dollars into it. Okay, I go and I sell that motor for seven hundred fifty dollars on Craigslist. I have to report that sale as income and I can deduct not just the parts I purchased, but the the exchange of goods as both expenses. And what do I pay pro? What do I pay taxes on five hundred dollars in profit? This is how these things work out. Again, though, I think if you're reporting an exchange of your neighbor with peppers and tomatoes, even the IRS is going to like look at that and go, what the hell are you doing? Okay, so there we go. Let's move on from that. The other thing that came up in this last week with all this stuff that was going on was an email from a guy who I think we're really close to the same page, but his initial comment that wasn't very well explained made me wonder how many other people think this. Do I hate governments? And if we don't have government to control things like roads and lands and, and other things that are generally considered public, and those get turned over to the corporations, wouldn't the corporations even be worse than the government? The answer is yes. You're right. They would be. Now, am I okay with private toll roads? No. Unless, let me give you the unless, If a private company goes out and buys sufficient land with their own money without support from taxpayers and buys a land piece that's a big, long strip that goes from one point to another and they purchase it all and it's their land, and then they go and spend all their own money to lay down pavement and build a road through there, and then they put toll booths up at both ends and say, it's our road, we built it, we funded it, you want to use it, you pay for it, absolutely. But when tax money goes to build a road and make it a public road, and then it's turned over to a private interest, to me, that's fascism. That's government and private industry functioning together in a form of corporatism that I don't like. When they take things like a Texas toll road, and they sell it out to a company from Spain to private ownership, after we paid for it here, I get really upset. All right, so... The private toll thing, that's something that some extreme libertarians are like. Every road should be a toll road. It should be run by private industry. The government needs to be out of that business. Me, not so much. I think I said this earlier. Let me, real quick, clarify my position on government. Number one, I want the corporations out of government, first and foremost. I don't want companies to be able to fund candidates anymore in any way, shape, or form, period. I don't want candidates to need a lot of money to run a campaign any longer. I don't think we need that. I think with the way that the Internet works today, we could set up campaign uh, parameters for candidates where they could all be seen and vetted by people all over the country without traveling, without signs, without invading our radio and our, our radio advertising and television advertising and hearing these bullcrap attack ads over and over again. I think that we could get candidates to actually force themselves to be on the record and say hey look this is what i stand for and i think we should also be able to take anybody that's actually been in government and as soon as they put out a campaign positioning there should be an automated system that pulls up everything they've ever voted on and tells us whether it's it's in sync with what they're saying or opposed to what they're saying i'd like and i wouldn't even have a problem with public money building this system as long as it was run by independents that don't care about the results In other words, it has to be meaningful when it says this guy says he's for lower taxes, but he voted for these three tax increases. And then a person should be able to drill down on that and go, well, what was this tax increase for? How does it jive? And should be able to basically kick that into a queue and basically candidate A finds out that, hey, you know what, clown, 28,000 people want to know how you are for lower taxes when you voted for these three tax increases. Please do explain yourself right? That's how I'd like to see our election cycles go forward. I'd like it back in the hands of the people, and I would like it where people that are really wealthy don't have an advantage when they run for office, and people that know a lot of people that are really wealthy don't have an advantage when they're running for office anymore. I'd like to see campaign contributions severely limited, not limited in how much an individual can, can contribute so much. It's limited to how much the candidate can collect in the first place, because these people that are going out, you look at the last presidential election, they are basically buying votes for about $15,000 a vote. God, you got to think about that. Might as well just send us the money, right? So, on the election system, I want all of this corporate money out. And I'm not exactly sure how to do it. And I don't claim to. But when it comes to government, what do I think they should be doing? Roads is one thing I think they should be doing. Think about the primary role of government, according to our founders, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for common defense, to provide for commerce, to allow for the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? Not to guarantee them, but allow them. These are the things that our government said, to create a nation in which we could have commerce with all, but alliances with none and stay out of entangling alliances. One thing we really need, if we're going to get that done, is to be able to have commerce and transportation within our own borders. Roads, to me, are a public domain, and I don't have a problem with government running roads. And if you look at roads and go, well, they really suck, and government doesn't do a good job with them, well, think about the fact that a ton of the money that's supposed to go to roads gets pilfered and sent off to some other pet program in a Robin Hood type of philosophy. And if our government stopped doing all the things it's not supposed to be doing and focused on things like building roads, well, we'd have the greatest roads on the planet Earth. Wouldn't that be cool? We'd have the type of interstate system that Eisenhower envisioned. That would be neat. Schools, I am okay with public funding being used for education, but I think parents need more choice in that world. Military, absolutely. Law enforcement, absolutely. Protecting homes with things like fire departments, absolutely. Providing specific pieces of land that are set aside like national parks, state parks, and things like that, and maintaining them and making sure there are still natural places that can be commonly enjoyed by all people, absolutely. Those are all great roles of government as far as I'm concerned. I just want to ask you a question. Do we need to spend $3 trillion a year that we don't have to provide those things? The answer is absolutely not. We do not. And there are so many ways that we could fund initiatives like that. And all of the other social engineering nonsense needs to be let go. That's how I feel about government. So, those of you that think when I say I'm a libertarian and I want government severely limited, I want their responsibilities and their power limited. I don't want to turn those responsibilities and power over to corporations. I want to turn those responsibilities and power over to individuals. So that they cannot be used against the individual by someone that just happens to have a few billion dollars in their back pocket. I think it should be impossible to buy up half the country. And in some of the people that are like the, the severe libertarian way extremists, that's kind of what you're advocating. I don't even think you realize it. But my viewpoint is simply that the individual knows what's best for the individual and that if we followed the Constitution, so many of our problems would go away. So I don't hate government. I hate our current form of government because it resembles nothing like what our founders envisioned. It's way too big and it's way too wasteful. So when I talk about getting rid of government, I'm talking about getting rid of about 80% of it. And the other 20% of it, taking 10% of the cost uh, of the 80% of elimination, dumping it into the 20 making that really, really good, and letting people take on responsibility for their own lives, and allowing people to fail. Absolutely allowing people to fail, because that makes our nation stronger. Let's go on from there. I, I, this is something I've really held back on for a long time. Um, is discussing any kind of conspiracy theories on the show, because we're not extremists here, and I don't care what you believe about any conspiracy theory. I think this show is for you anyway. Learning how to feed yourself, learning how to store food, learning how to defend yourself, learning how to pay attention to politics, not how to think about it. I tell you what I think, but I tell you think the way you want. If you disagree with everything I just said about government, if you think big government's a great thing, fine. That's your belief. All I can do is present the things that I've learned over my life to you. So when we get into conspiracy theories, I think the problem is that we polarize people one direction or the other. And in general, I think most conspiracy theorists, and if you are one, you might want to plug your ears, are out of your head nuts. I think you're crazy. And I think the problem with conspiracy theorists is they lock onto one or two legitimate things, and then they have all these blanks that can't be filled in. And then the human mind has this desire to take any narrative that's incomplete and complete it, and they fill it in with whatever they can find, with a lot of circumstantial bullcrap. And then what happens is, the conspiracy theory is just as far, if not further from reality, than what's considered the generally accepted explanation. The one I'm going to tackle today, and I don't think there could be anything that's more true with this, is the 9-11 truther movement. So, if you have a sacred cow in this, this thing, I'm going to warn you now. I'm going to tell you what I really think. If you remember the old Sean conspiracy theories I did over a year ago, where I kind of snapped out, I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to be real nice to both sides, but I might slaughter your sacred cow on either side of this, uh, you know, it's everything the government told us is true, or, yeah, man, they blew it up with controlled demolition. Either one of those is getting slaughtered by my view today. Here's what I think. On 9-11-2001, while I was landing in Pittsburgh Airport, uh, four planes were hijacked by about 19 individuals. Is that number solid? Are we sure of that? Do we know everybody that was involved? I don't think so. Those individuals were extremists, and they believed in their cause, and they used their cause to cause murder, torment, and anguish and fear throughout America by crashing two of the, the planes into uh, the World Trade Center, Clashing one into our Pentagon and crashing one into the ground in western Pennsylvania when the passengers tried to overtake it. That is what happened. Unfortunately, things like our government had no idea could possibly occur don't jive with me. And the report from the 9-11 Commission doesn't jive with me. The conspiracy theorists go through all of these explanations of why there had to be thermite here, and it was actually a cruise missile, and where the people go, we don't know, and all these other things. And I think when we start going into that realm, we go into the world of nut, nut jobs. And I'm sorry that you, some of you believe this. Some of you believe these things. And I'm telling you, it just doesn't add up. And I'm not going to go into why it doesn't add up. My opinion and your opinion are equally valid here because they only affect our own lives. Okay, So let's agree to disagree there. But let me tell you, if you're on the conspiracy crowd, why I think you are being used by the people that you think you're fighting. Because there are some valid questions about 9-11. One of the questions would be, how is it that NORAD was running a drill of the same scenario on the day that it happened? That's never really been followed up on. And instead of this huge conspiracy theory that would need thousands and thousands of people cooperating and none of them having a shred of decency and speaking out and saying, I know what really happened and I have proof, you only need one or two people to leak some information. So one of my questions is why didn't we ever follow up on the potential for a security leak that would only need one or two people to leak that security information and just tip off uh, a force that would say, hey, look, this would be a good day to do this. So it's not like the two were synchronized. And I'm not saying this happened. I'm just saying it's a question I have. And I haven't really seen any research done into where the security leaks. Here's a couple bigger ones, though. I'm about to do something I don't generally do on the show. Maybe I'll do this more in the future. I've stripped some audio off a YouTube video. I'm going to play the audio from a YouTube video right now. And what that video is going to be is a gentleman named Thomas Keene. Now, who is Thomas Keane? He was the chairman of the 9-11 commission, the, the, the independent body that researched 9-11 and you're going to be hear him questioned about something that if you've never looked into this you may have never heard before and if you're a conspiracy theorist you're going to be like, wow, Jack's bringing the truth, right? Um, and, and I am, and I'll tell you why I think this is one of the truths that you guys should stick with and stop going off in your full hat worlds if you ever want the, uh, the full truth to come out, not the real truth I think that that's what we're looking for is the full truth and there's some things that have been left out out of the story, and I'd like to know what they are. But I want you to listen to this, and I want you to, if you are a person that thinks that 9-11 just is 9-11, it just was 9-11, the conspiracy theorists have absolutely no credibility whatsoever, and we should believe the establishment, I want you to listen to this very carefully. Uh, Again, this is uh, questions being asked and then some follow-up commentary, and the gentleman being asked these questions is uh, the chairman of the 9-11 Commission entirely.
0: On page 172 of your report, the 911 report, you state, quote, the U.S. government has not been able to determine the origin of the money used in the 911 attacks. Ultimately, the question is of little practical significance, end quote. How can you state that the question of who bankrolled the deaths of 3,000 American people on September 11th is, quote, of little practical significance? Because it costs so little money. That's the whole thing. It cost less than five hundred thousand dollars. That's why it was so hard to trace. We were able to find pieces of the of the five hundred thousand dollars, but came in very small pieces. And you said earlier five hundred thousand dollars to do the 9/11 operation. Well, we know that a hundred thousand was wired to Muhammad Atta directly from the head of Pakistani ISI. Well, I'm not aware of 000, the hundred uh, thousand dollars. The Pakistan, I think, is the most dangerous country.
1: Why was there such a vested interest in covering up the transaction between the ISI and Mohammed Ahmed? And let's talk about that wire transfer because Governor Kane had no basis for denial because the FBI and the Wall Street Journal confirmed the General Mahmoud Ahmed wire transfer I'm talking about. But the 9-11 Commission deliberately said that funding is not important and assigning blame is not important to them, Mm -hmm. but it is to us. Okay, so hopefully you got most of that. There was a little bit where the guy was talking, where King, where King was talking, and it was a little hard to hear him. They have some subtitles. I will put a link so you can watch this video yourself uh, today on YouTube if you want to. But basically, this is this is the reality. This is the cut and dry of all this, and you've just heard proof of it, uh, confirmed in mainstream media, by the way. About a year before the 9-11 attacks happened, uh, this general from Pakistan, part of their ISI, ordered a wire transfer. This wire transfer put $100,000 into the hands of Muhammad Atta. This general is still out there. He's not been incarcerated, he's not been interrogated, he's not even really been questioned about this. No follow-up has been done on it. And inside the 9/11 Commission's report, as you heard stated, rating word for word verbatim from page 1 I think it was 179 the guy said, the 9-11 Commission determined that the funding for the event was was of little practical significance. Now, look, I'm sorry. This bothers me. This would be like, I come over to your house and I shoot you in the head. And eventually they figure out I'm the one who shot you in the head. But when they find me, I'm laying in my bed shot in the head. I sh- I, and they know it's not a conspiracy. Nobody came and whacked me. I shot myself because I knew I was going to get caught. But they go into my bank records and they find out that somebody else wired me a hundred thousand dollars before I knocked you off. And then the police would say, Well, that's of little practical significance. We're not worried about assigning blame. We're just worried about making sure that we're sure that Jack went over here and shot this guy in the head and then shot himself. As long as that happened, we're done with the investigation. You see conspiracy theorists? This is something that the average person would listen to. And this is why I say that you are being used as a tool by the very people you think you're fighting. They encourage you. They bait you. They want you to go out and sensationalize this control. They want you to tell people nonsense, like a guy that owned the building had the authority to order its destruction, that being Larry Silverstein with Building 7, because he said pull it, when he meant pull the, pull the rescue attempt, pull the fire attempt, as though he made a command and they brought the building. It's just nonsensical that that guy would have the authority to order anything more than a box of uh, tacos from Taco Bell. And they want you to do this so that these legitimate questions don't get handled. You want another one? I'll give you one more, and we'll move on from this topic. The other thing I think that anybody that's concerned with the truth that would like a true independent third-party investigation into this and and would like to know what really happened, as all these guys say they do should focus on, is a guy named John Farmer. Now, who is John Farmer? John Farmer was the chief counsel to the 9-11 Commission. He was the person that actually drafted the 9-11 report. So if you go out and buy the 9-11 report, which is in book form and available for anybody to read as a public document, and you read it, this is the guy who wrote it. Let me read to you a little bit about this book that he has out called uh, The Ground Truth, the story be- behind America's defense on 9-11 and how it's set to be released uh the, the, the story behind America's defense on 9-11. Uh, the book unveils how the public has been seriously misled about what occurred during the morning of the attacks, and Farmer himself states that at some level of government, at some point in time, there was an agreement not to tell the truth about what happened. Only the very naive would dispute that an agreement not to tell the truth is an agreement to lie. Farmer's contention is that the government agreed to create a phony official version of the events to the cover-up of the real story behind 9-11. The publisher of the book, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt states, Farmer builds an inescapably convincing case that the official version is not only, not only is almost entirely untrue, but serves to create a false impression of order and security. On August 2006, the Washington Post reported some staff members and commissioners of the September 11th panel concluded that the Pentagon's initial story of how it reacted to the 2001 terrorist attack may have been part of a deliberate effort to mislead the commission and the public rather than a reflection of the fog of events of the day, according to sources involved in the debate. The report revealed how the 10-member commission deeply suspected deception to the point where they considered referring the matter to the Justice Department for criminal investigation. We, to this day, don't know why NORAD, the North American Aerospace Command, told us what they told us Said Thomas H. Keene, the guy you just heard from, the former New Jersey Republican governor who led the commission, it was just so far from the truth, it is one of those loose ends that never got tied also, as we also reported in August 2006, released portions of NORAD tapes from 9-11, which were featured in Vanity Fair article, do little to answer skeptics' questions about the importance of U.S. air defenses on 9-11, and if anything, only increases focus on the incompatibility of the official version of the events with what is actually known to have taken place on the day. This is very important you hear the end of this. This is the part that separates the foil hat from the head. Make no mistake, Farmer is not saying that 9-11 was an inside job. However, Farmer's testimony, along with that of his fellow 9-11 commission members, conclusively demonstrates that whatever really happened on 9-11, the official story is told to the public on the day. Uh, and that which remains the, to the authorities' version of events today is a lie. According to the very people who were tasked by government to investigate it, This is a fact that no debunker or government apologist can ever legitimately deny. So there are my two big sticking points with the 9-11 official story. One, we have never found out what the source of funding is. The one place we do know funding where it came from, nobody's ever followed it up. This stinks that a rookie beat cop would follow up a lead like that, okay, on, on a random hit on the street. And there's a reason that hasn't happened. I'm not saying I know what it is. I don't pretend to connect dots. I don't fill in blanks. I'm telling you there's a reason somebody doesn't want it done, and I damn sure do. The next reason that I doubt the official report on 9-11, because the people that wrote the report that brought it to us, the 9-11 commission that was supposed to be an impartial source, that's supposed to be the final word, has said their report's not valid. That's why. Okay? Okay. So those are two legitimate things. And I think you conspiracy nut jobs out there, if you want to get somewhere, grab those two. There's some stuff with Bush I could bring up. But you know what that does? It polarizes people. It makes you think you're out on a witch hunt for Bush. All right? And if the person happens to like Bush, they're not going to listen to you. These two things are something that anybody with, you know, the synapses connected properly in their brain has to end up with a question of going, yeah, um, that's not right. Stick with that if you want to get something done with your conspiracy theories. Let's go on to something else. So the next question is basically a simple one. Is now a good time to buy gold or silver, given that they are currently close to their all-time highs? Uh, what do you think is going to happen with the price? Is it, is it always a good time to buy gold or silver, no matter how high it goes? Or is this a time to sit back? I'll, I'll tell you what. I just All I can tell you is what I'm doing with my my current purchasing right now myself. I'm continuing to buy silver in small quantities. I'm doing it mostly in small quantities because I've been buying it in small quantities for a very, very, very long time. So I'm not sitting with no silver and no gold right now. I am not buying gold right now. I'm not comfortable with how high it is right now. And I have, for the last year, felt that silver was a safer play than gold because silver is well undervalued where gold may be either properly valued or uh overvalued at this point because there is so much fear. Now, to be fair, I'm not a metals analyst. I am not giving you investment advice. All I can do is give you my view of things. And that's it. And I don't have any insider information, man, or some guy told me and all this nonsense that you hear out from these people that want to sell you gold. Okay. Um this is how I look at it. My belief is that our economy is about to go through a false recovery. I've been on record with that for a very long time. It now looks like it's beginning to occur. I said that we would have a false recovery before we were done with the crash. This is not a new thing. It's not like I latched onto it. If you go back and listen to my shows from 2008, before the crash was even here, when they just thought it was here, and I'm like, it's still going to get worse. And I said, at the end of this thing, we'll have this false recovery. I don't know how long that will last. It could be a year. It could be several months. It could be several years. But there'll be this rage of the economy with hyperinflation kicking in. That'll make the everything looks like it's good at first. Because what happens with inflation is, initially, prices just rise a little bit. And they start rising more and more and more. As prices start to rise, obviously, the bottom line numbers of the company selling the things go up. So the stock market starts to roar. And eventually... Inflation starts to run away. The Fed has to raise interest rates to slow down the economy. And you slow it down. And, you know, that would be the, the Keynesian theory would be if you do this right, you can keep it in balance. And it just kind of rides this continuously escalating wave. A little up, a little down, a little, but always a little bit more up in the end. But when fundamentals underlying the market are wrong, eventually the bottom falls out. That's what happened recently. And that we're creating this next new bubble, which is built around government. And government will create the ultimate bubble and therefore the ultimate pop. And if anything's going to create a bigger bubble, I don't know what it is yet, but it certainly could be carbon offsets. So, to shorten this, my belief is that we're about to go through a year, maybe two years, where the economy's going to look like things are getting a lot better, and that could even go on longer. Sorry for the interruption there. Anyway, so since I have this belief that this, this, this short-term fake recovery is coming, my belief is that will devalue gold short-term. Because a lot of the money that's been put into gold, even if people expect the crash at the end, they will know that we're off for another ride. So what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to free up capital to put into the casino, known as our stock market and our other investments, so that they can make one big more call on the casino before the next crash. So when people start to dump that gold, and you will see a lot of it getting dumped. Again, this is opinion, right? I'm not citing a source here, so it's my opinion. When people start to dump that gold so that they can go back and liquidate into a currency, so go from money to currency and use the currency to purchase um, game chips, which we'll call stocks, uh, that will bring the value of gold down. So I'm, I'm looking for gold to come into the $800 range. And at that point, I'm looking at it as being a good buy once again for me. Now, I also own some gold, a significant little portion of gold. And I own a lot of silver. If I had none right now, I'd probably still put, I don't know, it depends on how much money you have available. But if I was sitting on $100,000, I'd put at least $5,000 in gold, even right now. Even right now. Because I could be completely, totally, 100% wrong. And I'm always honest about that, unlike a lot of people that get on a, on a show every day and run their mouth. I could be completely wrong about this. In fact, I reserve the right to be wrong. And I'm telling you flat out, I'm not sure on this one. I am pretty sure on the false recovery. I think you're going to see things in the economy appear to get better and better and better while the deficit grows and grows and grows. And the country's bankrupted now. And I don't think we can come back from it. And eventually we have to go into a currency revaluation. So, if you bought gold, if you held it for 15 years, if you're going to hold it for at least 15 years, go ahead and buy it. If you're going to hold it for 20 years, buy it. If you're going to hold it for two to three years, and you might need the money in the next two to three years, I'm not comfortable saying throw your money there yet. So, I think long term, even the people that buy now will, will be better off. But short term, if you have funding that you might need to use in the next 18 to 36 months, I, I'm really not clear exactly how long this thing's going to last. And there may be some real opportunities as long as you're able to liquidate your money. Now, if you go in and buy gold at 1,200 bucks and it drops to 800 or 1,150, I think is what it's at today, and it drops to 800, you may not choose to exercise an opportunity because you'll know you're losing. So that really great house that you needed the money for a down payment on, maybe you don't, maybe you don't take the. So you see what I'm saying? You have to be smart about this. Uh, Silver. I see a different, a different world with silver. I think silver has been highly undervalued. We've recently had some conclusive proof come out, uh, that some manipulators in London have been making it appear like there is more silver than there really is. So that's another reason I believe silver. And you saw silver just jump. As soon as that info came out, man, it jumped because people realized, hey, something's being suppressed. But it didn't jump enough to compensate for the vast, uh, overshadowing of this, uh, the short plays that were being done with silver. And what was important to understand about this, and I reported on a week ago, uh, maybe a week and a half ago, that what was being done with silver is options trading, which is nothing new, except it was what's called naked options trading, which means I write a contract where I'm allowing you to control a 100,000 ounces of silver, right? Now, if I have 100,000 ounces of silver and you're right and I'm writing the option to you, that's that's conventional options trading done every day. And nothing really wrong with that. But what was being done is naked options, which is I wrote you a contract allowing you to control 100,000 ounces of silver, but I only have 10,000 ounces. 10 to 1. All right. So you're naked on 90,000 ounces of silver. So if the person that bought the contract chose to exercise their option, I've got a crap 90,000 ounces of silver. Not easy to do. So that was going on to a large degree, and it was being used to push the the metal up and down, up and down, up and down, and this insider trading thing was going on. So that's out now. And the mainstream's still not talking about it. How big an impact will it have? I don't know, but I don't think that's the only place that's being done. I find silver highly undervalued. Um, I would buy it personally. Again, this is personally right up to about $25 an ounce in small quantities. If it drops to like, 12 bucks, man, go in hard. 14, go in pretty hard. You gotta make your own decision. And remember, it's hard. See, this is why I don't like investment advisors, even the ones that go on record on like radio and TV. I say that, you know, if the silver hits 12 bucks, go in hard. But, why did it hit 12 bucks? See, if something changes, you have to, you have to, if it, at 1350, you'd have to ask me, is it gonna still go to 12? Do I do it now? Is it gonna drop even further? Because as the, as the market changes, the dynamics change. These are just my feelings at present. So there you go. I hope that's the best answer I can give you. Gold, if you have none, buy some small quantities. If you have a lot of gold, sit on what you have right now. Okay? It, and I'll tell you if I feel differently about that. If you have no silver, buy quite a bit. If you have a lot of silver, keep buying in small quantities. If you're really afraid and you want to know what's the best storehouse of wealth right now for your money, um, right now, this second, it's still probably cash. Now, that can change. You have to keep a barometer on that. But it's probably cash in some type of short-term security uh, that can be cashed in with no penalty. That's probably the best play right now, because so many things are uncertain right now. There's a lot of stocks that are probably still good buys short-term out there. Short-term, I mean two years. But I really believe this false recovery is coming, and when it does, they're going to play the band, and a lot of people are going to make a lot of money, and all that's going to happen on the end of it is more woes and pain than we just saw with what just happened. All right, let's go on to another one. Totally different change up here. guy says to me, hey, look, if I vacuum seal my seeds for storage, how much longer will they last than if they're conventionally stored just in a cool, dry, dark place? Um, The answer is, depends on the seeds. Let's first talk about this. In his question, what he said is, look, I get these seeds and the package says they're good for one year in the package. If I take them out of the package, vacuum seal them, how much longer are they good for? Well, first of all, remember when you buy seeds from any supplier, what they hope is that you'll become a repeat customer, so you'll buy seeds next year. Now, if your seeds last for one year, you'll get one, maybe two plantings out of them, and you'll need to buy fresh seeds, unless you're saving seed from that harvest and going back. So, there's a certain packaging being done there that's not necessarily a lie. They're not misleading you, but it is kind of angled at getting you to come back next year and buy seeds again, Right put an expiration date on something, and we go past it, then what do we as consumers do? We are trained in our society, in our economy, to discard it and replace it. So let's first talk about what it means to have seed go bad. First of all, seed never goes bad to a point where it's dangerous. So if you have seed that's 10 years old and you plant it in the ground, you're going to get one of two results. Some of it will germinate and produce, and there's nothing unhealthy or dangerous about that and whatever comes out of it is usable, or none of it will germinate because it's gone inert. So what happens with seed is not that it goes bad, but that it declines in its vitality. So you might have seed that went fresh from last year, and we're planting it this year, it's been properly stored, might have germination rates of 95%, which means if I put 100 seeds in the ground, 95 are coming up. <clears throat> Next year, the germination rate will generally decline. So let's say it was 95% the first year. Some seeds, it may go down very little. It may be 91%, which is still damn good. Some seeds, you know, lower than that if it's freshly harvested. Because different plants have different abilities for their seed to be stored for different periods of time. So what happens is the next year maybe it goes to 91%. The third year, maybe now we're dropping down to 84%. The fourth year, we're dropping down to 70%. And at some point, based on the channel that you're dealing with, the germination rate becomes unacceptable. Now, again, it's highly specific to the plant. A plant like New Zealand spinach has really thick seed cases. It's hard to germinate. A standard germination rate for viable seed with New Zealand spinach is 65%. So the freshest New Zealand spinach seed in the world is only going to germinate at 65%. So if you had New Zealand spinach germinating at 50%, most people would still consider it a viable seed. We take something that's, that has a very high germination rate, like amaranth. Amaranth will usually generate up in the high 90s if it's, if it's good quality seed. So if that drops to 50%, most people would say that that seed's not viable anymore based on a market rate. So I'm not going to pay you for amaranth seed When I only get a 50% germination rate, I would pay you 50% of its value because it's generally close to 100, now it's down to 50. And these are all blue-gray areas, right, that change. And, you know, seed has to be tested out of each stock if you're going to sell it. Of course, this guy's talking about more for my home. So, how would you determine how well a particular type of seed is improved in its storage capacity through vacuum sealing? And this is the only way that I could tell you to do that. And you could probably make some pretty good guesses based on known uh, germination rates if you did this. Take C- equal seed, equal amounts, equal volume in an equal-sized container stored in an equally dark and temperature-controlled environment. Put one into something like a, an envelope or a Ziploc bag that is not vacuum-sealed. Okay? Put the other one into a vacuum-sealed container. Store them in that exact same environment for two years. Take a large enough sample to get a good germination rate and test germinate them. Do that in something uh, that's like uh, moist vermiculite or perlite, seeds laid on top of them, controlled temperature, controlled lighting, both of them side by side in exact location. Wait the standard germination date range, let's say seven to nine days. At the end of that period of time, count the total number of seeds that germinated from the vacuum sealed and the total number of seeds that germinated from the non-vacuum sealed. If they're identical, you can say that in at least a two-year period of time, that vacuum sealing had little or no effect on those seeds. And some seed, which has a very good storability, you'll see a very little difference. And in that case, you can assume that... uh, there'll be very little difference, at least up to a point of maybe five or even ten years. I just read an article in the New Quarterly from Seed Savers Exchange uh, last night about certain radish seeds that they went and they were just you know st- typically stored, good controlled environment, they weren't vacuum sealed. Ten years, they had as high a germination rate as they didn't want. Some seed, you're never going to get that. So if you're really interested in knowing, then you can do some experiments like this and maybe put aside some stock of seed. Maybe even go buy a mass quantity of something, just, and just do it as an experiment, and do it at two years, and three years, and four and five. But my belief is, if you get a 5% improvement, in other words, uh, you were at a 95%, and then you dropped to 90, uh, without vacuum sealing, and you, and, and, and you drop to eighty the sec- 85 the second year, and you stay at 90 the second year with vacuum sealing, you could probably take that and look at a standard germination uh, chart and a projection for that strain of seed. So you could go out and find how well tomato seeds store. And you could generally see that they'll have a germination rate of X, Y, and Z as you go at two years, three years, five years, seven years, ten. And you'll see that germination rate decline. You could probably take whatever that variance is, and somewhere in there, you're going to get that level of improvement. That's a long answer, but it's an honest question, and it's the best honest answer I can give you. But here's my big thing. It costs nothing except the bag, if you already own the vacuum sealer, and it will at least make sure that the seeds aren't damaged. In other words, if I take my seeds and I keep them in envelopes or something like that, I have a moisture potential for maybe for something to get spilled on them or for them to get wet. If I store my seeds in a vacuum sealed container, I could probably put them in the pool and they're not going to have any danger from uh, moisture. So I say with most of your seed, especially the seed that you've got small quantities of in reserve because you've just started saving it, why not just do it anyway? Because whatever level of additional protection it provides, cheap insurance. So there you go. Let's take another one. Okay, so this is really in the realm of the foil hat brigade a little bit, except it's not in the thread that I mentioned where people are saying, talk about this and talk about that and give us your opinion on this. But it is a video that just came in today uh, that I watched on YouTube, and it's something I've said before, and I've been told that I'm nuts when I've said this on the air. Some of you have said, yeah, are just crazy. You're nuts as those foil hat guys, and this is the fact. Fluoride is a toxin. The stuff you use in your toothpaste to brush your teeth with does provide some protection for your teeth, as a topical substance, in other words, something applied to the surface. But when ingested, it's poisonous. If you go out and buy rat poison, most rat poison, if you read the ingredients, you'll see one major ingredient, sodium fluoride. Most of the fluoride that's put into our water system comes from smokestacks. I'll put up an article you can read today, It'll tell you about that. If the companies providing the fluoride to the municipalities dumped the fluoride into the water themselves, they would be in violation of several laws and be locked up and thrown in jail. But because it's added to our water as an additive for our health, it's considered safe, even though much of it goes through our bodies and back into the same water supply. okay? Humans are not filters for, for fluoride. We accumulate some and we excrete some. So we're adding this toxin to our water supply because even the sewer treatment plants don't filter it out. It's ending up there. Right. But I guess my big thing is that fluoride is a toxin. It doesn't belong in our water. I'm about to play for you. a. Uh, this is from a mainstream news station. This isn't any kind of you know underground world. You're going to hear for yourself uh, what is being said now publicly about fluoride and it being used in our water supply.
0: We have been fluoridating our water in Tennessee for more than 50 years, but never before has there been more talk than that fluoridating our water might be a bad idea and a health risk. Tonight Dennis Ferrier has the latest developments on a story that impacts all of us. Joey Hensley is a respected physician. He's also a Tennessee state lawmaker. He is now combining those two professions to make a very strong point. We've been doing it 50 years. Uh, But just because we've been doing something 50 years doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Hensley's talking about something most of us don't even think about, fluoridating water. After much research, the doctor has sent out a letter to every water district in Tennessee asking them to stop fluoridating water. The evidence, he says, fluoride works better when you rub it on your teeth, not when you drink it. That fluoridation is medication added to water without your permission, and that's wrong. But most of all because the National Research Council believes young children are getting three to four times the dose of fluoride as adults. And now the American Dental Association is telling mothers not to make baby formula with fluoridated water because of fear of dental fluorosis. And that's big news, and that really hasn't been um, uh, publicized very much. Health researcher Dan Stockin believes that this ADA warning about baby formula and fluoride is just the beginning. The ramifications of this are so huge, I'm sure that the state health department hasn't quite figured it out yet. Because, see, once the door cracks, and it is now for what it does to teeth, the next group, one of the next groups that's going to start raising their hands and saying, what about us, is people who are on dialysis and people who have borderline kidney damage and impairment then there's all the people that have hypothyroidism. Scientists like Nobel Prize winner Arvid Carlson and a large group of EPA scientists have called for the banning of fluoride because we don't know how much we're ingesting, so we don't know if we're being poisoned. There are so many potential legal things about to happen that as a taxpayer, I think it would be really, really smart for the water districts and the metro Nashville Look, just if people want fluoride, let them use fluoridated toothpaste and spit it out. But don't go poisoning everyone. Don't, be, don't continue this after everyone knows all this information now just because it's not convenient. Uh, Dr. Hensley has already had one response. Spring City in Ray County is going to stop fluoridating its water, and it is that simple. I mean, there's no law. It's all voluntary, Dan, so anyone can turn on the fluoride or turn it off. Dennis, let's make sure we're clear on this. Fluoride right. its in tea, it's in coffee, it's in water, it's in bread, it's in toothpaste, but it's actually a poison, right? It's, it sure is, and here's the, the quickest evidence. Go to your uh, bathroom and pick up your uh, toothpaste, and you'll see a warning that if you a child swallows more than a pea-sized amount of toothpaste, call poison control. Wow. Dennis Ferrier, thanks.
1: So there you go. I mean, that's pretty damning. And basically what this lawmaker is saying to these water municipalities, is there's no law requiring you to do this. Maybe you should stop doing this. And that now that the lid's starting to come off of this thing, you might have a lot of taxpayers suing and taking preemptive action by stopping now as soon as you know, really know, because I'm telling you, might be a good idea to protect yourself. That's what this guy from Tennessee is saying. And kudos to him. Let me, I mentioned about your fluoride in your water coming from industrial smokestacks. Let me read you something. Um, and this is not mainstream media, so take it with a grain of salt, but prove the guy wrong if you think he's wrong. Uh, the title of the article is, uh, first it was by a guy named Mike Adams. He's an editor for naturalnews.com. And the title is, Toxic Waste Chemicals Are Disposed Of By Feeding to Humans, Then Calling It Fluoride. Listen to his opening. If I told you you could have great looking skin by eating skin cream, you'd think I was crazy. But that's exactly what dentists are telling you when they say people should ingest fluoride in order to improve the health of their teeth. Fluoride is a topical treatment. When natural mineral fluoride is placed onto the surface of your tooth enamel, it helps remineralize that enamel, thus improving your resistance to cavities. But to swallow fluoride in order to treat your teeth is like swallowing hair coloring chemicals to change the color of your hair. If you're going to treat the area with a topical treatment, you're not supposed to swallow it. You're supposed to put it in contact with the surface needing the treatment. The whole argument about fluorinating public water supplies brings out, I think, the worst of organized medicine, organized dentistry. It shows the egotistical, power-hungry nature of the American Dental Association and those dentists who follow its dangerous philosophy of demanding that people swallow bioactive substances on command, for their own good, of course. With the fluoridation argument, a few people in authority positions want to force every single citizen in this country to be medicated on a psychoactive, biologically active substance without having any medical diagnosis, with no public warning of side effects, and with no real studies to back up its efficacy. But that's just the beginning of the story. To make matters even worse, it's not that municipalities are actually dripping genuine fluoride into the water supplies in the first place. They're largely using fluorosilic acid, which, as I've covered before, is actually a toxic waste product produced in the smokestacks of various industrial chemical producers. If they weren't selling this substance to the cities, they would have to pay a lot of money to have it handled as an environmental hazard and buried in EPA-approved landfills. Thus, it's illegal to take this fluorosilic acid and bury it in the ground and dump it in rivers or streams in this country, but it's perfectly le- legal to sell it to cities, drip it into the water supply with the intended purpose of it being ingested by human beings. And those human beings, of course, eventually pass the fluoride through their bodies and directly into the rivers and streams. Okay, I'm going to let it go there. You can read the rest of this article if you want to. But I want you to put the two together. This guy, and I, I could not prove him wrong in any way, shape, or form. I cannot find anything denying this. Is saying that the fluoride in our water supply comes from industrial processes and the substance that they're using would be considered a toxic waste. We just heard a Tennessee lawmaker and physician advising people in water municipalities to stop doing this because of the threat of lawsuits. And we heard in that news report as well that formula manufacturers have now come out with warnings and say do not mix your baby's formula with tap water because the fluoride could be toxic to your children. Okay, so conspiracy theorists? I think you get one here. Now, I want to comment on this once again. This is what happens so often with conspiracy theorists. We get an inch, and then they take a mile. So now it's being done with the explicit purpose of uh, killing people off for a eugenics program. I mean, come on. Come on. Isn't it bad enough that these chemical manufacturers have found a way to profit from the disposable, disposal of toxic waste, and that the American Dental Association has hoodwinked people into believing that it's a good idea to drink fluoride. And remember what they said at the end of that report. Go read your toothpaste tube and see what it says to do if you swallow more than a pea-sized amount of the toothpaste. Right now, if you go to your, your medicine cabinet or your, your, your sink top or wherever you keep your toothpaste, if you ate a tube of toothpaste, it will kill you dead. It would be like eating rat poison. Does that mean you shouldn't use fluoride toothpaste? That's your choice. That's your choice. I do. I use a very small amount and uh I rinse quickly and I don't let you know huge volumes of it build up under my tongue and be absorbed sublingually. But I believe that topically applied real fluoride, not this industrial crap, has a legitimate purpose for dental health. And I think if you did look at any of the studies where they treated teeth with fluoride and without and both of them were kept clean and had a similar diet, you'll see a real effect. And even the guy on the natural news is saying the same thing. So, is fluoride in of itself evil? No, it's the application of it. Just like government. Is government evil? No, it's the application of government that sometimes is inherently evil. And in, in my view, taking this substance, which is a toxin, a known toxin, and putting it into our water, is criminal. And I think we're on the verge of people realizing that. Now, Again, if you're a conspiracy theorist and you want this to come out, stick to the facts. Don't go off the deep end into Alex Jonesville. Alright, just don't do that. Stick to the facts and the known facts. They're powerful enough. But again, you're used like a chess piece because you go to the extreme, like our noble kite flyer from the forum. Dude, you are you are on that dec- anybody that's been on our forum has seen the post from this guy. Dude, you are smoking some really good ganja or worse. You gotta be. Because you are out there in the netherworld of nonsense. You really are. Come back to the, the real world, folks. So those are my two little uh, spots for the tinfoil hat brigade today. And we'll keep doing that, because to me it is kind of fun. I do think that a lot of these things have nuggets of truth within them. It's the sensational nonsense that gets appended to them, and then goes out into the world of outer space, and all of a sudden nobody with common sense can believe it we we stick to reality, we might find out that there are a lot of things being pulled over our eyes right in plain sight, as the conspiracy theorists often say. All right. Last one today um, is a simple question, and it comes down uh, to your personal choices in a large variety of ways. But it is simply, is are I better off buying metal online to avoid sales tax or buying it locally to support the local economy? You know, which one is a better financial decision and maybe which one is a little bit more of an ethical decision, keeping the money at home versus sending it away. Well, with when you're buying gold and silver, there's tax consequences, and and they're they're across the board. There's the chain reaction of putting the money in the circulation, and then there's the eventual sell of the metal, if you ever sell it in the profit-taking. So there's going to be tax consequences anyway. If you want to look at this purely financially, if you're going to go out and buy, let's say, Two ounces of silver tomorrow, two silver eagles. Odds are you'll pay less sales tax if you go down to your local coin shop and buy them uh, than if you order them through the mail and they have to be shipped to you. If you're going to buy 40 silver eagles, you're probably going to pay less shipping than you would sales tax. So you go and you look at, I mean, this is simple math, right? You go and you look at how much would it cost to buy uh, a roll of silver eagles or two rolls of silver eagles from an online supplier, what is their uh, what is their shipping cost, and what's the total? And you, what is your state sales tax rate? And if it's eight percent and you're buying, let's say five hundred dollars, that's forty bucks in tax. Odds are the shipping's not going to be forty bucks on five hundred dollars worth of silver. So in that case, you would be financially better off buying it through the internet or over you know through the mail, if you still want to use that terminology, um, you know, ordering by catalog, so to speak. From an outside state, so the interstate commerce applies, and there's no sales tax on it, right? So that really is a financial decision. When you move to gold, it's almost always the case. If you think about how expensive an ounce of gold is, eleven hundred dollars, an eight percent sales tax rate on that is going to be about ninety bucks. Shipping an ounce of gold is going to cost four or five dollars. Even if you, you know, obviously it's a valuable commodity, so you ship it insured at twenty bucks. So gold, you're almost always going to be better off buying online from a reputable supplier because the shipping costs are going to be well under the cost of sales tax. Small quantities of silver, that flips around. So it's up to you. I say I always buy based on the best deal I can get at the time for whatever it is I'm purchasing. When I'm buying from silverandgoldshop.com, a lot of times I'm buying coins that are exclusive to them. I can't get them anywhere else. And I want them so... I pay their price without even thinking. If I'm buying Silver Eagles, I'm going to go on eBay. I'm going to go to Monex. I'm going to go to Kitco. I'm going to go to all the major suppliers, and I'm going to see who's selling it at the best price right now, and whoever I get the best price from, since I'm buying a known commodity, an American Silver Eagle, right? I'm not buying a highly numismatic coin where I have to really worry hugely about reputation. Whoever I get the best price on a roll from, that's who I'm going to buy from, With some exceptions. If I have a a good ongoing relationship with a business and their price is within 2 or 3%, I'll buy from them. You know, I'm not going to nitpick down to the penny. But if I can save 20 bucks and that's one extra silver eagle, well, I'm going to go with that supplier because my money does more. So it really comes down to a case of mathematics. But I think what you'll find is up until about the $200 plus amount with silver, You'll probably come out ahead by buying locally and paying the sales tax. Unless you find a really good deal online. And there's some really good deals occasionally on eBay. They usually don't last long because the guy's got a limited supply he's trying to clean out. He just wants currency quick. Right? The, the once you go over two hundred bucks, you kind of start to fade into where it doesn't really matter. Five hundred bucks in silver, you're almost always going to do better. Even four hundred, you're almost always going to do better not paying the sales tax on. When you go into gold of an ounce or more, you're almost always going to do better buying online. That's just the way it works out. Too. So that kind of wraps up today's show. I hope it was interesting. We moved around. We did some different things. I brought in some outside commentary. I found that fun. I'm going to do that more. i have got a program that lets me strip YouTube videos down to the MP3 and convert them. Uh, so I'll, I'll see if I can bring in some more things like that on occasion, especially when you guys send me videos. If you want me to put a, the audio of a video on the air, here's what you can do. Look for a video that pretty much speaks for itself. It doesn't need a lot of the video portion of it for it to be used. The audio is pretty standalone. Look for it to be less than three minutes in length. Get me that, and if it's relevant, maybe I'll bring it on and do something like I've done today. Other than that, keep on keeping on, man. Keep on building that better life. We didn't talk about a lot of practical solutions today. We didn't talk about seed saving for a little bit and storage of seed. We talked about gold and silver a little bit, which is important to your investment portfolio. But remember what it comes down to. Be able to provide for yourself if the systems of support fail. Be able to feed yourself and defend yourself. Know where you're going to go if you got to leave. Have a plan to get there. Have everybody's contact information put together. Be prepared. Be prepared, and, and not in the way, you know, the Boy Scouts, I think Scouts are great, but when they say be prepared, I'm talking about a whole other level. Be prepared not just for daily events, but be prepared to take care of your family when no one else is there. As we've seen time and time again, when true disasters strike, the only person you can really count on is yourself and your family. And many times your family's not strong enough and they have to count on you. So be prepared for that. And if you do that, you'll find yourself a lot more confident in making better decisions for yourself going forward. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: You can scream. You can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.